Welcome to The Word in the Glass, a podcast by saints for the saints, dedicated to finding answers and the only source of truth, the Word of God. We are devoted to sound doctrine and biblical theology, the building up of the church, and the encouragement of the faithful. Allow me to briefly touch on sound doctrine and biblical theology. Why is that such a staunch point for this podcast, for this group of men? I am often asked why the focus on doctrine and theology. I might have even asked that question at one time or another myself in the past. Okay, I have asked that question in the past. At first glance, these principles could seem very churchy or even arrogant. I get it, but they're not. They are the very tools that equip us to understand and therefore follow the Word of God. Of doctrine, Tim Chile says this, It is the Bible's truth that sustains, strengthens, and guides us. This is why Paul speaks of it as he does. It is, he says, made up of sound words, 2 Timothy 1.3. It is sound teaching, 2 Timothy 4.3. And sound doctrine, Titus 2.1 and 1.9. It is in accord with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 6.3. These references to sound teaching and doctrine, then, are a reminder to us that from such teaching the church's strength arises. From it comes its health. It is what reverses spiritual ills and, sometimes, even deep paralysis. It is what makes churches whole. It is what lays the foundation for their vitality as well as their longevity. This is why biblical doctrine is so important. This is why it is essential. Of theology, Dr. Andres J. Kostenberger says this, No, biblical theology is not just theology that is biblical. All theology should be biblical, but that's not what biblical theology typically refers to. Rather, biblical theology, simply put, is the theology of the Bible. That is, it is not our own theology, but that of the biblical writers themselves. It is their convictions about God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and God's work in human history as revealed in the writings of Scripture. You see, without sound doctrine and biblical theology, we would just be six guys sitting around a table talking about feelings, how this or that made us feel, what we think the Bible, and therefore God, is or should be saying. That is a perilous place to be and one that would have us teaching a different doctrine and devoting ourselves to myths. This is why we are committed to sound doctrine and biblical theology, and why we encourage you in that as well. Spurgeon tells us, It is God's word rather than man's comment on God's word, which is made mighty with souls. We need sound doctrine and biblical theology to ensure that we are studying and understanding the Bible and what it is saying clearly. So I hope I was able to clarify a bit why it is we are so stringent on this. Woe to me if I were to present something to you of my own thoughts when putting forth the truth of the Word of God, right? And note, biblical theology does not only pertain to things difficult to understand, but applies wholly to all which we must understand. Through it, we can be confident that what we believe and what we must hold fast to is the gospel first delivered to the saints. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2 Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay, I do want to remind you all, and listen up in case I put you to sleep there, the old word in the glass channel is being deleted next week. We are about half and half as far as listeners who have moved over to the new channel. Right now there are two channels, one with a white background and one with an orange background. The white background is the old channel. It will be deleted on September 1st. The orange background is the new channel and the only channel moving forward. The easiest way to find this is to search the Word and the Glass podcast, but use an ampersand instead of the word and. That'll get you the right one. Simply follow that channel and you won't miss out on a single episode. And speaking of episodes, I am thrilled to bring you a special From the Pulpit to the Podcast episode this week by Bob Hausman. Bob filled the pulpit here at Strasburg before Stefan came in as pastor. Bob is a gifted teacher and a great joy to listen to. Today, Bob filled in for Stefan, and the message was so, so good, I could not pass up the opportunity to share it with you. Plus, the live streams of our Sunday services seem to be suspiciously getting interfered with as soon as Stefan, or in this case, Bob, begins to speak. Hmm. And this needs to be heard. This message is timeless, encouraging, and challenging. I would say maybe even listen to it twice. I certainly will be. So let's go to the pulpit now and hear from Bob as he teaches from Acts. Well, good morning. Greetings to you. I'm so thankful uh, to God that we still have the grace of God granting us the freedom to gather and unite our voices in praise to God for Christ our Savior, who's with us in the storm, who's sovereign over us, who's the right man on our side. We sang all those things today and whose love is so great beyond comparison. Praising God that we as a body get to unite in that this morning. You were probably expecting Stefan and expecting the book of Hebrews this morning, but obviously I'm not Stefan. Uh, he, of course, has filled the pulpit for about the last 18 months or so, at least. He's not feeling well. He's got a pretty severe cold. He and his family encourage you to pray for them. He tried to power through it. And bring you a sermon. He was determined, but he finally threw in the towel late yesterday afternoon. And so we made a plan to revisit a sermon that was preached about three years ago out of Acts 4. So we're going to be in Acts this morning, Acts 4, not in Hebrews. And I must confess, I'm a little disappointed. I love the book of Hebrews. For those who have been in hard mind, we spent three years, or I forget how long, a long time, in the book of Hebrews. And I wanted to come behind Stephan and remind ourselves of some of the things in Hebrews. Hebrews, of course, the theme, the primary thing in Hebrews is that Christ is supreme over all. Jesus Christ is supreme over all things, supreme in His revelation of God to us, supreme over all created things like angels because all things were made through Him, as you heard Ben say, and He now sustains all things like angels, like us. He's supreme as our reigning glad King who loves righteousness and hates lawlessness. In fact, if you think on that, he became what he hated 
He became lawless to save us, which is an amazing thought. And He's supreme over death because He became like us so he, with a body so He could die and render powerless whom, who had the power of death by removing all accusations because in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation to free us from the fear of death as He made purification for sins once for all. He is supreme over all things. And that's the focus of the book of Hebrews. But there's more than that. Because He's supreme, it demands a response from us. A response to go on in faith. There's a therefore in that. Therefore, we must look to Jesus. We must pay close attention to Jesus. That's the call of Hebrews. And you've heard it from this pulpit as Stephen has preached. We must not drift away from Jesus, from giving our attention to our great salvation that's in Jesus. Instead, we're to fix and rivet our eyes upon Jesus and, in fact, encourage each other to do the same so we're not hardened by sin's deceitfulness and we don't fail to enter the rest of God. He is supreme over all things and therefore we are to go on in faith in Him. We need that message every day. We need that message especially now as society unravels. And I wanted to preach that, but there simply was not enough time to prepare that. And so instead of Hebrews, we now get the privilege of opening the great book of Acts. Again, we were in Acts for a while, long time in this church, and we get to revisit an important topic from Acts chapter 4. So may the Lord now give us ears to hear and hearts to receive His Word by His Spirit as we open the book of Acts. If you would stand with me and turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 13. Just a little bit of context. Peter has Peter and John had just healed a man who had been lame for 40 years. This healing drew a crowd. Peter preached Christ. The authorities do not like that message. And so they threw Peter and John in jail. Now they have them before them the next day, demanding an account for what has gone on. Peter preaches Christ to them. And that's where we'll pick it up now in verse 13. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Now... As they, that's the ruling Jews, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, People, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We confess we need you by your spirit to work mercy in us, to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive this, your word. And we need your spirit to guard the words that come out of this pulpit. And so we pray your presence among us now. Grant faith, grant life, grant resolve, grant courage, grant eyes to see and behold Christ such that we cannot stop speaking. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. The uh, title this morning of the sermon is Courage and Conviction in the Face of Threatening Opposition. Courage and Conviction in the Face of Threatening Opposition. You can see it in verses 18 and 19. When they, that's the ruling authorities, had summoned them, the disciples of Jesus, they commanded them not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. And this was their reply to these authorities. End of verse 19. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. Meaning, go pound sand. That's courage and conviction in the face of threatening opposition. And I have several questions for you this morning. They actually are the application questions roughly in your bulletin. If you have that, you should and I should be thinking of these through this sermon. First question is, do you consider yourself to be a courageous person? Are you undaunted by opposition? Are you brave and bold and undeterred by danger or peril or loss? Do you stick to your convictions against the crowd and against the authorities? Are you courageous? That's the first question. The second question to ponder, I pray the Lord pushes us to consider, is are you sensing maybe that your courage and conviction might be tested in the future, in the near future? That is, that maybe a stand for truth and obedience to Jesus may become costly for you. And will you be courageous in that, in that trial? We should ask ourselves that. And third question is, how will you be courageous for Jesus? How? How? What will produce courage and conviction in you in the midst of opposition? My desire this morning is the Lord would reveal to us the reality of threats aligned against His people while also giving us hope of courage and conviction as He draws our eyes upon Jesus. That's, our, that's the answer to courage and conviction is fix your eyes on Jesus. So a little context for this morning before we jump into our text. I just plan to walk through the text. So here's a little bit of context for how we got here. Peter, of course, healed a blind or a lame man. And then he preached Jesus to the crowd and called the people to repent and believe in Jesus. Look at, well, if you have your Bibles open, chapter 3, 18 and 19. But the things, Peter's preaching to the crowd, the things that God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. So he's preaching Christ crucified. Therefore... 
Repent and return. That's repentance and faith. Repent and believe so that your sins may be wiped away. Don't you love that? That your sins may be wiped away. And that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There is a wiping away of sins because Christ was crucified and risen. And Peter's preaching that. And the Jewish authorities do not like that message of Christ crucified and risen. And so they put them in jail. Chapter 4, verse 2. Being greatly disturbed because the disciples were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. For it's already evening. They don't like this message. In fact, the authorities, these are the same authorities who murdered Jesus. They then called the disciples to give an account for themselves. What? An account for the miracle. That's verse 7. They placed them before them and they said, By what power or in what name, authority, have you done this? It's a conflicting authority for these rulers. They hate this rival authority, this, this people influencing power. It threatens their control and their narrative about Jesus and their authority over the people. So they call him to account, and Peter boldly declares that it's the name, it's the person of Jesus. He is the source and the power and the authority that brought about the life change of this man, the healing. In fact, their salvation found nowhere else. That's Acts 4, 10 through 11, or through 12. It says, Let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of, of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which is, was rejected by you, the builders, but has become the chief cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter boldly goes right at them and proclaims the truth of Jesus. He's the reason this man was healed. And friends, I want you and me to hear this this morning. Salvation is found in no one else. And we need salvation. Our sin has made a wreck of our own life as well as a wreck of the world. Though we were made in the image of God to reflect His glory, instead we rebelled against Him. From the womb, clenched fists towards God and were culpable for that rebellion. In fact, God's wrath rests on us. And unless it's removed, we will perish. But God is gracious to send Christ who was crucified as our propitiation, our wrath-bearing, Father-pleasing substitute. He was crucified in our place, bore wrath for us such that we can be forgiven, that our sins can be wiped away. That's the good news. And the call, therefore, is to turn from your sin and return to God. Believe in the Lord. Hear that this morning. That is the context for our session of Scripture. Jesus' followers are on trial for faithful proclamation of Christ crucified, risen, and reigning. Well, that brings us to our text. 
And brings us to our first heading and our first point. And it's this, being with Jesus changes you. Being with Jesus changes you. This is, by the way, if you're looking for a a well source of courage, it's here. Find yourself at the feet of Jesus. He will grow your courage. That's what happened to the disciples. Look at verse 13. Now when they, the ruling authorities, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Being with Jesus affects you. It changes you. And and the disciples had spent three years with Jesus. They dwelled with Him. They had lived with Him. They had been taught by Him. They'd seen Him die on the cross. They'd seen Him alive, raised from the dead. They had experienced His ascension, seen His ascension as King. All authority was His as He ascended into heaven. They understood now the gospel of grace of Jesus. That their sins were wiped away by faith. That's why they heralded that message. They were thus now born again by the Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was bringing to mind all that Jesus has taught as they're proclaiming just like Jesus had promised. They had the mind of Christ. As Paul says in Corinthians, and this constant presence and influence of Jesus affected them. It changed them. Being with Jesus changes you. You can see the text. It says they were confident. The disciples were confident. Not cowering. They were showing a broad understanding of scriptures that pointed to Messiah. Remember they they quoted the Old Testament in Acts 4.11. Jesus, the stone which was rejected by you. This has become the chief cornerstone. They're they're quoting Psalm 118. Not only that, they were confidently announcing Christ Jesus as exclusive path to salvation. Only in Jesus. And so because of that, they said there's no salvation in no one else. And because they were so confident and bold, they were in essence schooling the religious leaders. These uneducated, untrained disciples, except trained by Jesus, were were schooling the accepted authorities in society. And that made the Jewish authorities take notice. In fact, it says they were amazed. They were amazed at the confidence of these men. The reason they were amazed, the reason they were confident is because they had been with Jesus. That's the point. Being with Jesus changes you. And friends... I want to encourage you and me this morning to spend time with Jesus. And you will be affected. You will be changed. You will become confident. You will become courageous. And note this, your education is not the issue. Education is not the issue in your lack of confidence. Though get trained and get educated. But the issue here is whether or not you've been with Jesus. That's what changes you. Do you spend time with Jesus daily in His Word, learning of Him? Do you talk with Him and commune with Him in prayer? Does your heart beat with Christ? Are your priorities His priorities because you know Him so intimately? That's the call. 
Spend time with Jesus and you will be changed. You will become a confident, courageous proclaimer of the things of Christ. Being with Jesus changes you. That's the starting point for courage. Which brings us to our second point as we walk through the text. Unbelieving authorities, this is point two, unbelieving authorities do not bow to the evidence through reason alone. You can see that in verse 14 and 17. Evidence is before them and they don't bow to the evidence. Look at verses 14, here we go. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, that's the evidence, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another and saying, What shall we do with these men for the fact, evidence, for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place to them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But, but, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Unbelieving authorities are not convinced through reason alone. That's the point here. They could not deny the evidence, but they remain in their unbelief of Jesus. And they had a dilemma. They couldn't deny the miracle. The man was standing right there. The fact of his healing was obvious to all. He'd been begging for 40 years. People knew him as the lame beggar. But... The leaders also did not accept the proclaimed source of the miracle, namely Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. That's what Peter proclaimed was the source. Remember back in verse 10? Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Christ is the cause of this change. But the leaders cannot accept that. They had rejected Jesus then and crucified Him then and nothing had changed now. They still rejected the Son. And so they certainly did not want Jesus hailed as risen Savior and proclaimed among the people. You see that in verse 17 of our text. But so that it will not spread any further, this talk of Jesus, they forbid Him to speak. That's the, that's the tension point. The Jewish leaders are more committed to the rejection and unbelief of Jesus than in following the evidence and the confirming signs. <laughs> that's, that's dead on to this world as well. You remember God gave... This, this sign was meant to help produce faith. God gave miraculous signs to Jesus and then eventually to the apostles to confirm the divine source of their message. As they proclaimed Christ crucified and risen, the, the, the miraculous sign was a confirming sign of the authenticity of, those, of that message. So in this case, this lame man who was made well was graciously given to, as a sign by God to pr- produce faith in the message preached by Peter. And many people did believe the sign and, and God working did affect the people. Verse 4, many of those who heard the message believed. And the number came to be about 5,000 in the church. But, and here's the point, 
Seeing is not necessarily believing because unbelief is not overcome by reason alone. There needs to be a work of God in the heart before faith is produced. Don't think there's neutrality and your reason is unbiased and and the unbeliever's mind is unbiased. You need the obstacle of your unbelief overcome by God. That's what Jesus says in John 6, 44. No one can come to me, he says. No one can come to me in faith unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. God must work to overcome that. It's not just evidence. It is evidence, but not just evidence. Or you can think of Peter. Remember Peter confesses who Christ is? You are the Christ. They asked him, who do you say that I am? He goes, you're the Christ, Peter says. The Son of the living God. What was Jesus' response in Matthew 16? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's the work of God in your heart to be able to confess Christ as Lord. And that's the point. There needs to be a work of God in the heart of the unbelieving to produce faith. It's not just the work of evidence. So friends, know that. Know that unbelieving authorities in your sphere will not be swayed by your evidence that you present alone. God needs to act. So that means in your bold proclamation of truth, including evidentiary truth of Jesus, in that bold proclamation, pray. Pray for God to open blind eyes and bow hearts to Christ. And I pray that you are on your knees daily and nightly for this nation, because that's exactly what is needed. That God would move and grant repentance in this land and grant renewal. Realize, brothers and sisters, that rebellion against God, which dominates even our governing authorities, is present in this land. And so our pleadings to follow truth, to follow data, to follow science, to follow truth on the issues and principles maybe of freedom that are word-based, that will not win the day without God intervening. So pray unceasingly. Unbelieving authorities do not bow to evidence through reason alone. God must act. Which brings us to our third point this, unbelieving authorities seek to oppose and silence truth, word proclaimed. Unbelieving authorities have an agenda to oppose and silence truth and the word proclaimed. We see that in our text big time. Again, verse 17. So here's the, here's the, the conclusion of these authorities. They said, but so that it, the message, the truth of Jesus, will not spread any further among the people. Let us warn the disciples to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when the authorities had summoned the disciples, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The unbelieving authorities you see in this text act, take action to silence the gospel of Jesus, the truth of Jesus. The leaders do not want the teachings of Jesus to spread among the people. They want the teachings contained, silence, 
censored, and not just in public. Look how, look how inclusive. They warned him to speak no longer to any man in the name of Jesus. They, they command them not to speak or teach at all. It's not just keep it to yourself and maybe in your family. It's more than that. They don't want this word uttered anywhere. And so they commanded and they warned and they threatened the disciples to no longer speak or teach in Jesus' name. Think of the irony. These are leaders who claim to be voices for God, but they are in fact opposing God and His salvation that's found exclusively in Jesus. And as such, because they are now opposing God, they are in fact tools in the hand of Satan. This is exactly Satan's agenda. Satan's ploy is always to silence and confound and contradict and twist the word, the truth of God. It's been his ploy from the beginning of time. Genesis 3. Has God said... That's, that's to drive a wedge in your mind to doubt God and what He has said. Has God said? That's silencing the Word. You will surely not die. That's a twisting of the Word. And Satan now uses men in exactly the same ploy to carry out his demonic schemes. In this case, he's using Jewish leaders. The same leaders that Jesus called out in John 8. Listen listen to Jesus' indictment of these leaders in John 8. It's scathing. He says to them, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. The desires of your father are to twist the truth, to lie against the truth, and to murder, because Satan's a liar and a murderer. And these Jewish leaders are simply tools doing exactly the same thing, lying and seeking to murder. They, They succeeded with Jesus. So these Jewish leaders, steeped in unbelief, acting as tools of Satan freely, not against their will, they're freely in the employment of Satan. They use their position of power and authority to try to stop the spread of truth, to stop the proclaiming of Christ, to stop the teaching of Jesus, to stop the heralding of the Word of God. And therefore they oppose truth proclamation through the threat of imprisonment and death. Death is not in the text, but we know death is a threat because they'll trump up charges and drag you to prison big time, as they did with Jesus. So here we see the disciples are opposed with the threat of imprisonment and death for speaking the truth of Christ. Right here, they're opposed, they've been threatened for speaking truth, for speaking of Christ. This is severe loss. They are facing severe loss because the unbelieving authorities are seeking to oppose and silence the word proclaimed. Friends, the threat against the liberty to speak truth and proclaim the gospel of Christ into the culture is real even today, is it not? (laughs) Three years ago, I may not have accented this as much, but... I can't imagine where it's going to be even in three more years. Increasingly, we are and will be threatened with financial loss, imprisonment, even death for speaking truth to our neighbors, maybe to our kids. 
especially for speaking the truth of gospel of Jesus. So be prepared. It's no longer over there where that's happening. It's here. It's coming. Satan is actively working through our leaders, through our corporations, through academia, through media to silence and censor truth. Say about marriage, that marriage is between one man and one woman. To silence the truth about gender being binary, there is male or female, period, because that's the design of God. To silence the truth about the humanity and personhood of the unborn, whom they slaughter by the millions. To silence the truth about the power of Jesus to overcome sexual brokenness. You do not need to be identified by your sexual brokenness. Jesus changes you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord. There's an act of working to silence the truth of God. The primary message that the powers at be are aligned to squelch is the truth of Jesus. That Jesus is Lord in all of life. So my question, how will you respond? How will you respond when commanded and warned and threatened to no longer speak truth? To no longer speak of Christ. To no longer speak the principles and the teachings from the Word of God that you're commanded to teach. Teach them all that I've taught you, Jesus said. What will you do? How is, what is your response? Which brings us to our last point. Disciples of Jesus. If you're a disciple of Jesus, disciples of Jesus have courage and conviction in the face of threatening opposition. Disciples of Jesus have courage and conviction. May that be true of you and me. We see it in our text, verse 19. But, this is against opposition, but Peter and John answered and said to these opposing authorities, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot. This is blanket. This is, this is naked courage and conviction that's characterizing these, the response of these disciples. Peter and John, they're on trial before these authorities, but they are boldly, that's courageous, they're boldly answering the rulers. And it's with a really a rhetorical question. They're saying to the rulers, who has ultimate authority over our lives? Is it you religious, civic, corporate, ruling authorities? Or is it God? And the answer, of course, is God. God calls all to account. Everyone is subject to God. Even rulers, even governing rulers are subject to God and accountable to God. And God had called these disciples to proclaim Christ. They're the sent ones of God, the sent ones of Christ. That's what apostle means. And Jesus, who is the risen Lord and now God and forever God and now King, reigning King of kings and Lord of lords, He has commanded the disciples, in fact, He's commanded the church to be witnesses of Him. To speak and to proclaim His teachings, His gospel of salvation. Therefore, the disciples are accountable to God first for this command to, to preach and teach. They're not accountable to the authorities. Not first, they're accountable to God. 
first, and therefore they must speak. They must speak. That's verse 20. They must speak. It's not an option for the disciples to be silenced. They're accountable to God. Look at verse 20 again. It says, We cannot stop speaking of what we've seen and heard. We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Why is that true for the disciples? Why is that true? Why can they not? Why are they compelled to speak? Well, it's because of what we said in verse 13. They'd been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. They'd seen and witnessed Christ crucified, risen, and, and now ascended as King. They'd seen all His deity confirming signs of authority. He's Lord and God. They had heard all His teachings of truth, like He's the Son of Man who came to give His life as a ransom for many. They heard Jesus proclaim, He's life giver. He's resurrector. At the end of time, He speaks and the dead rise. They heard Him say that He's coming again to not only resurrect, but to judge the world. And they believe it. They know. They've come to know and believe that He's the Holy One of God. Therefore, they cannot be silent. That's why they cannot be silent. They've been with Jesus. And Jesus changes you. Therefore, they must speak of Christ. That's conviction. Verse 20 is conviction. They must speak of Christ. And since they're directly opposed, since they're saying that to those who oppose them, that's courage. That's courage and conviction in the face of threatening opposition. Friends, is this your response? Is this your response? Do you have strong conviction to speak of Jesus? Are you unable to keep silent about your encounter with Jesus because you've been with Jesus daily in His Word, abiding with Him, communing with Him, loving Him, trusting Him, abiding with Him through prayer? And oh, and may this be true of us as we grow to love and trust Him in all things, in all circumstances. May it be that we must speak of Him because we've been with Him. And may this be true of us even when the stakes are high, when peril and danger oppose us in our speaking, when we stand to lose much in this world. May our conviction produce courage. May we be people who lean on the truth, the promises that are ours in Christ, the truth of Christ. We know who reigns. That should give us courage and conviction. We know who's in control. He's sovereign over us, as we sang. We know who loves us as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is His love, we sang. We know who is for us and not against us. We know who will never leave us or forsake us. It's the Lord Jesus. And being with Him convicts us of that and teaches us of that. In our current circumstance, may we hear the encouragement that Moses and Joshua gave to the people of God. Remember, the people of God were getting to, ready to enter into the promised land. And they were sure to face life-altering circumstances like war. And cultures allied against them. And Moses and Joshua repeat this often. He says to the people of God, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or tremble at them. Do not fear or tremble at them. 
For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts is with us, we sang. He's the one who goes with you. So be strong and courageous. It's not, you're not going to encounter conflict. It's saying in that conflict, be strong and courageous. And that's the, that's the point. Disciples of Jesus, if you've been with Jesus, persecution is promised. It is a promise of God. Those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. But in the midst of that persecution, you will have courage and conviction to speak the truth of Christ into that culture, into that conflict, because we've been with Jesus. That's how you have courage and conviction. That's how you cultivate courage and conviction. Disciples of Jesus will have that. Therefore, disciples of Jesus must speak of what we've seen and what we've heard in Jesus. We must. Now know this, sometimes the threat against disciples of Jesus ends your life. Peter was ultimately martyred, was he not? But sometimes God has further plans for you, and the threat passes. That's what happens in our text, verse 21. When the authorities had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because God had worked a miracle there. Sometimes the outcome may be death. Sometimes it may be you live to, to do more work for Christ. I have a final question before we end. We're done with our text, and I'm done with the points, but I have one final question before, we, before we're over, as this is over. I've just advocated speaking into authority, telling them, no, we will go on speaking. We will not obey you. The question is this, am I therefore advocating to disobey authorities in general? Are we anarchists? If you were here last week, you know the answer to that. Because eating the king's bread, or I think that's what sermons that that Stephen preached. You know the answer to that, but here's here's a kind of a review of some of that. Peter is the one who told the, the authorities, no, we will not stop being silent. We must speak of this truth. And this same Peter who opposed these rulers said this in his letter to the church in 1 Peter 2. He says this. This is for you and me. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. That's why government exists, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Are we anarchists? No. Submit and obey authorities because God has instituted government to punish evildoers and to promote righteousness. So it's God's will for believers to obey and to submit for all governing authorities when they are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Punishing evil, rewarding good. But if governing authorities forbid what God commands... Or command what God forbids. Or steps into other spheres of authority which God has given, which is the church and the family. How might they do that? Say the government steps into the church and says, this is what you must speak from the pulpit. Or suppose the government comes into your family and says, this is what you must teach your children. 
Or this is what you must put in the bodies of your children. They have overstepped their authority. It's not their authority. And when that happens, we say no. We, we speak the words of Peter. We say, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. We're to follow the Lord, not the authorities. To obey rulers unless they forbid what God commands, they command what God forbids, or they overstep their authority. Remember, God is king. All earthly rulers, all earthly kings and authorities are accountable to Him. And we, the church, are called, in fact, authorized to make that known to them. To call them to account. The government's accountable to God. So no, we're not anarchists. Closing exhortation. Here's four things, reminding you four things of what we said today. Number one, being with Jesus changes you. Being with Jesus, Jesus changes you. Jesus makes you into a confident, courageous proclaimer of the truth of Jesus. Therefore, spend time with Jesus in His Word through prayer, abiding in Him. Number two, unbelieving authorities do not bow to evidence alone through reason alone. God must act to change the heart. So speak fact-based, word-based truth in the culture as you pray for God to open the eyes of the heart of the unbelieving. Pray for this nation as we continue to spiral down. God must act. God must act. Number three, unbelieving authorities seek to oppose and silence the word of truth proclaimed. Since they're the tool of Satan. So expect opposition as you live a life of faithful proclamation. Expect opposition. And number four, disciples of Jesus have courage and conviction in the face of threatening opposition because they have been with Jesus. That's the source of your courage and conviction. You're enthralled with Christ. And therefore we are compelled to go on speaking the truth of Jesus in our sphere of influence. So may the Lord make us full of courage and conviction in the face of opposition. Knowing we are Christ's who reigns supreme. Knowing we are Christ who loves us graciously. Knowing we are Christ's who promises never to leave or forsake us. May the truth of Jesus, may knowing Jesus, fuel our courage and conviction for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Mighty God, you are the everlasting Father working wonders, who is like you, there is none like you, and you have placed us in this place, in this time, in this history, and called us to be bold, courageous, convicted proclaimers of truth, of Christ. It's not optional. So Lord, we pray you come and do heart work in us. Rend our hearts for Christ. See us rooted in Christ. Cause us to set our mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right end of God. Cause us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Cause us to trust that you're working that which is pleasing to you in us, even through the trials, even through the opposition and threat of opposition. 
May we joyfully accept the seizure of our property, knowing we have a better and abiding possession, which is you, Christ Jesus. Lord, that is not natural. You must move by your Spirit in your church to make us courageous, bold proclaimers. Lord, we want to be people who are compelled to say we must speak. We must speak of Christ. We cannot help but speak. So come, Lord, move in your people to make us like that. And I pray for the lost that are here, that they would see that in Christ alone is their only hope. There's no other name given by which we must be saved. Christ alone saves. So may you, God, open hearts to receive that. And we do pray for this nation. Lord, as you are humbling this nation, we pray you, and judging this nation, we pray you grant repentance, grant renewal, grant a movement of your spirit to turn the hearts to you. And may there be, Lord, send out workers into the harvest to proclaim Christ. How will they believe unless they're told? Lord, make us a people that do that. Bold proclaimers of Christ. We praise you for emboldening your people. We praise you for changing us as we spend time with Jesus. Come and do that in this church for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Why should I sorrow anymore? I trust a Savior slain and safe beneath the sheltering cross unmoved. I shall remain. Let Satan and this world now rage, you now allure. The promises in Christ are made immutable and sure. The oath infallible is now my spirit's trust. I know that he who spoke the word is faithful, true and just. He'll bring me on my way unto my journey's end. He'll be my father and my God, my savior and my friend. Nothing on this earth near nor out in the universe far no created thing could ever separate or tear us apart he who promised is faithful for he has saved so who could reverse it i could never no never doubt his doubts and fears shall wholly flee away and every mournful night of tears be turned to joyous day all that remains for me is but to love and sing and wait until the angels come to bear me to my king Nothing on this earth here, nor out.
No, nothing that could ever separate me from his perfect love, his unfailing love. No, nothing.